as we get older, we're more likely to become more compassionate, to feel empathy for others, to become more tolerant of, of others. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and reading apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks, we build a lot of technology that helps people spend more time reading. But in our hearts, we are booksellers and readers. Normally, we bring authors into the Kobo studio at our offices in Liberty Village, Toronto, but in these extraordinary times, we want to keep bringing authors to you even if we can't be in the same room together. So we continue our series of interviews where we learn a bit about authors, their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Daniel Levison. He has degrees in cognitive science, neuroimaging, and perception from the University of Oregon at Stanford. He's also a musician, having played guitar, bass, and tenor saxophone alongside everyone from David Byrne to Roseanne Cash. And these came together in a book in 2006 that was very important to me called This Is Your Brain on Music. Since then, the books have continued, The World in Six Songs, The Organized Mind, and one that couldn't have come at a better time, A Field Guide to Lies. Most of his books circle around issues of neuroscience, perception, memory, and how they shape and construct both our lives and our sense of ourselves. And so his latest book, Successful Aging, a neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives, explores all of those themes in the context of getting older. Daniel Levitin, welcome to Kobo and Conversation. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. It completely ignored the the hours and hours I spend fruitlessly in front of the television set, which I appreciate. <laughs> Amazingly, they never put that in the uh, in the bio, but we can probably get to that later. In your introduction to this most recent book, you say that how well you age depends on, and I'm reading from the book here the confluence of a number of factors reaching back to your childhood and our response to stimuli in our environments and shifts in individual habits. And then you say that this is a provocative argument. Why is it considered provocative that those two things determine how we age? Well, it's perhaps not provocative among scientists, at least cognitive scientists, that the view among the people who study lifespan, lifespan psychologists, particularly those with an interest in cognition, which is just a fancy word for information processing and memory and uh, decision-making, those things. The view is that you, the course of your life and, and who you are and how you interact with the world and the world interacts with you are largely influenced by three factors, uh, genetics, the environment you grow up in, which includes uh, culture, and then opportunity or random chance that, you know, whether you, you know, slipped and fell and broke your leg when you were seven years old, or Mm -hmm. if you happen to run into a particularly influential mentor at some point. The average person tends to think, well, there are a lot of things that you either have or you don't, genetically. You're born with it. You're born to be curious or you're born to be generous. Um, but a whole lot of this is under our control. That's the controversial part. And you begin the book talking about 
personality and you know how what a personality is linked to lifespan but you also say how it's possible to change personality and that one of the things that surprised me in in reading it is that the idea that you can change personality is a relatively new idea can you talk a bit about that yeah personality is the the thousands of ways we differ from one another uh, and it includes things like uh, are you outgoing or are you shy are you generous or stingy are you fearless or fearful agreeable or disagreeable argumentative are you emotionally stable or do you have emotional ups and downs do you feel compelled to draw those around you into your emotional ups and downs or do you keep them to yourself these factors have a genetic component, certainly, but not the genetics aren't as much of it as many people think. In some cases, genetics are only 7% of things like that. It's hard to get at a precise number, but mm -hmm. the idea is you can change those features of yourself if you choose to. At any age, it's never too early or too late to start. And there are a half a dozen ways at least to go about that change if you want to make the change. It's like the old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, well, just one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> the other revelation to me in the, you know, in the early part of your book, and again, this probably is one of those things that's, you know, surprising to me, but not surprising to either you know, neuroscientists or cognitive psychologists, is that there's no one stage of life that's more important than any other when it comes to the development of who you are and the traits that you have and how those can affect your, you know, your lifespan and how you age going forward, that these are things that can be changing throughout your life. I wouldn't say that there's no one part of your life that's more important than another because early childhood really is important. The first sure. year and a half to two years, if you're not cuddled and if you don't have a stable caregiver who's the same person all the time who, you know, and attends to you, uh, that can cause great stress. And certainly things that happen to you in the first five years, if you were kidnapped, God forbid, or witnessed a bloody murder, I mean, horrible mm -hmm. things like that can leave a lifetime of personality damage. And yet, the fascinating thing is that there's a personality component called resilience. And some people who experience terrible things like that recover and, and become really great, well-adjusted people. And other people, the tiniest little thing happens to them. Like one day, their mother was 20 minutes late coming home at the end of a work day and the kid freaked out was never the same <laughs> and becomes a serial murderer or something you know the the variability in how we respond to stressors is fascinating so it's not even that you can say well objectively this person had stress no it's the internal subjective feeling of stress that counts and so all of these different personality traits, these, you know, this combination of things like curiosity, resilience, generosity, are some of the things that go into you know, the, the personality that you bring forward into later life. And so how, what's the connection that you're drawing between traits of personality 
and how people successfully age as they get into their later years? Well, there are three traits that predict greatly how you're going to fare at any age and are particularly important, say, after 50 or 60. One of them we, we mentioned is resilience, your ability to overcome adversity, to deal with setbacks. I'm Canadian, as you know. I'm, uh, I'm connected to a lot of people in, in Montreal at McGill University where I uh, do research. Uh, and, you know, Montreal is under lockdown as we speak. This is a crisis for many people. And some people are responding to it with more of a can-do, resilient attitude than others who are fatalists. But like anything, this is a, a quality you can change if you choose to. And uh, one of them is curiosity, openness to experience, wanting to learn about the world. That predicts all kinds of life outcomes. Growth, really, is what it comes to, whether you're the kind of person who's trying to improve yourself or not, is related to that. And, and interestingly, although I'm mentioning it last, this one has the biggest statistical effect. It's the biggest predictor of how people will do at any phase of life. And that's conscientiousness. Really? You can also change that, but conscientiousness is the biggest single factor more than genetics, more than any other environmental thing that could happen to you. Why would that be? Well, conscientious kids don't cross against the light. So they're less likely to get hit by a truck, which could really alter the course of your life. Conscientious adults tend to follow rules, and so they don't end up in prison, which is generally a negative experience for most people. Conscientious people, adults, have, have a doctor, and they go see the doctor when something's wrong, and when the doctor tells them what to do, they do it. So conscientiousness is something that most of us could use more of. Of course, on the other extreme, too much of it leads to obsessive compulsive disorder, and you don't want that. So like anything, there's a happy medium. And one of the things that you, you describe is you know, some things that get better over time, that there are some traits that as we get older, we're likely to find more often or skills that we develop over time that come to the fore as we're getting older. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. As we get older, we're more likely to become more compassionate, to feel empathy for others, to become more tolerant of, of others. Not every older adult. I'm sure we could all think of cantankerous old coots who are not like that. But generally speaking, with every decade after 60, those qualities increase as, long as, as well as an ability to see the good in situations and in people. What my colleague Laura Karstensen at Stanford calls the positivity bias. What the great Canadian psychologist Alison Gopnik calls a grandparent syndrome. Grandparents have all these qualities that they didn't have when they were younger, especially when interacting with their grandkids. Because you, you mentioned the, a statistic that people generally get happier as they get older. This came out 10 years ago in a study that was done in 72 countries. And people were asked what their peak age of happiness was in their lives. And across all these different countries, including Canada and the U.S., 
peak age of happiness tended to be 82 on average. Part of that is this positivity bias. Part of it is, is gratitude. Older adults are more likely to experience gratitude than younger adults and children for that matter. Two-year-olds are not particularly grateful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you described two-year-olds as being the perfect psychopaths, which I thought was excellent. Well, they are because they don't care about the consequences of their actions. They're only thinking about themselves. You know, fortunately, most of us grow out of the terrible twos. Exactly. You also provided a definition of wisdom. And wisdom is something that's that's often associated with growing older. But I guess I had always filed it away as sort of an accumulation of knowledge. But you cast the net much wider in terms of what wisdom is and how that develops as you get older. I do want to say that it's not really me casting the net. I'm just, I mean, in the book, yes, it's me. But I mean, I'm reporting on the work of people who or eminent cognitive scientists like Robert Sternberg and others who study uh, intelligence and wisdom and things like that. And I can second that to say that the uh, that the book is well annotated and well footnoted. So <laughs> all of this is, <laughs> yeah. this is well cited. There's 75 pages of footnotes, I think. In a, in a sense, I think of wisdom both as wider and narrower at the same time as what you said which I agree is sort of the common conception of it. I think that wisdom is more than accumulated knowledge. It's the ability to use that knowledge in ways uh, that help others, that solve problems, or that have outcomes that are more predictable. In other words, to me, part of the definition of wisdom is that if you're telling somebody to do something, it's got to work out for them, you know, most of the time. It's like what you want in a weatherman, a weather woman, a meteorologist on the television. You don't want somebody to tell you, well, you know, there's an 80% chance of rain. And then, you know, almost every time they say that it doesn't rain or vice versa, right? You want somebody who's well calibrated. They're, they're giving you advice and it works most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think also with wisdom, you want somebody who can see patterns in things that might elude others, that can see similarities. Say, oh, well, that, that reminds me of that. I think the solution to your problem is related to this other problem I saw 50 years ago. And there was research that's been done that shows that that ability to find patterns to detect similarities is something that, that improves as, as time goes on, as you get older. Your ability to detect patterns is based on experience. And it's true, some people experience more than others at every uh, life stage. But in general, older people have had more experience than younger people. So if you needed surgery, Michael, I would advise you to find a surgeon who's done that particular surgery a few thousand times. If your surgeon says, oh, I can do it, I can do it. I saw it done in medical school. I even did it once or twice myself. No. That you know, let them learn on someone else, or let them stand by an expert and help. But no, if you need to see a radiologist, you want the person who has been doing. You're better off with the 70 year old radiologist than a 30 year old radiologist. They've seen it all, and getting back to this wisdom and predicting outcomes, they've seen whether the calls they made about whether that amorphous gray blob on an uh, image 
is cancer or not. They've seen the outcome. They've seen whether they were right or not. From looking at the hundreds of gray blobs that they've seen before. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of this is, is converging. Thousands, you hope. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so some of this is converging on this idea that we have capabilities and strengths that continue to develop over time. But you also talk about the importance of learning and continuing to add new skills over time. Can you talk a bit about why that becomes so important as we get older? One of the things that keeps our brains healthy and active is learning new things. Children have robust, healthy, active brains because most of them are in school and learning, particularly the curious ones. As we get older, certain parts of the brain shrink. We see some cognitive slowing. And we have a tendency after the age of 60 or so to not want to try new things. Part of that has to be that we, and dopamine is a, among other things, rewards you for learning new things and doing new things. It rewards exploration. And so we become complacent. Um, We need to push back against that. We need to push ourselves out of our comfort zone and make an effort to try new things if we want to keep our brains active and healthy into our 80s and 90s and beyond. We can grow new neurons and new neural pathways well into our 90s and beyond. That never stops. But with the brain, it's, it really is use it or lose it. So trying out new things, learning a language, playing an instrument, a new instrument, socializing with new people, any new experience is important for the aging brain. It's neuroprotective. And it it evokes neuroplasticity. The brain rewires itself with each new thing you learn, each new experience you have, each new conversation you participate in. As we get older, do we approach or should we approach learning differently? Do we learn differently as we get older? We do. Between the ages of zero and 10, our brains are sponge-like and learning is just sort of automatic. Kids learn language without ever being explicitly instructed. They just pick it up by listening. After the age of 10, the primary mission of the brain shifts from making as many new connections as possible to pruning out unneeded ones. And it doesn't mean you can't learn new aspect. So that by the time you're 20, if you were to try to learn a new language, it's almost certain you'd end up speaking it with an accent. And unless you make Herculean efforts, you'll never become really and truly fluent in it and dream in it and think in it the way you would if you had learned it at age five or six. And it also applies to music. I started playing music when I was four, but I didn't take up the guitar till I was 20. And though I did play it professionally, uh, well, I still do. I still tour and, and perform and record. But on the guitar, Carlos Santana once told me he detects a slight accent when I play the guitar. <laughs> and yeah, I started it at 20. <laughs> You spent a significant part of the the middle part of the book talking about the choices that we make, the things that we can do and the things that we can control that are significant contributing factors to uh, to successful aging. Can you just take us on a on a quick tour through what those major areas are 
that we can control ourselves that sit outside of our genetics and sit outside of things like personality? Well, I, I guess, Michael, there are two broad domains. One are these personality factors we've been talking about, like mm -hmm. conscientiousness, openness, curiosity. And the other is lifestyle, healthy lifestyle practices revolving around diet, exercise, and sleep. Good news is, as I said, you can change at any age. Um, there are a lot of ways that people can do that. No one way works for everybody. But to begin with, therapy is effective. Uh, psychotherapy, you can particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what we teach at McGill, which is less about lying on a couch and describing your childhood and more about giving you practical tools to help you achieve the goals that you want, the changes that you want in your life. Uh, it's very practical and, and task goal-oriented. Goal but therapy isn't for everybody. Not every therapist is for everybody. Sometimes you have to hunt a bit. Some people uh, respond to meditation. They, they achieve these goals of personality change or healthy li lifestyle practice change through meditation, through medication. Some drugs such as anti-anxiety drugs can help us to be more outgoing if we choose to. Antidepressants are actually more widely used than just treating depression. They can help reignite or ignite things like curiosity and openness to experience and even conscientiousness. Just being able to stick to conscientious planning and bill peg and things like that can be assisted with pharmaceutical intervention. Of course, that's not for everybody. Some people find inspiration in art, in literature, in stories of others. As I say, there's no one path Speaking of inspiration, can I tell you about my new hero? Yes, please. It's Julia Hurricanes, a 104-year-old retired school teacher from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who is a competitive runner. Uh, she won two gold medals at the Olympic Games last year. She's broken world records for the 50 and 100. And she didn't even take up competitive running until she was a hundred years old. She was never particularly athletic until age 75 when she decided to be a competitive cyclist. So we're really talking here about somebody who decided to change their life. And other people have heard and read about Hawkins and, and said, I, I want to do that. And more power to you. When you first approached this book, it was in some ways looking at your own parents who are in your 80s, what was it that you noticed about them that made you want to tackle this idea of aging successfully? Oh, you've really done your research, Michael. My parents turned 80 and I thought, you know, I'm a neuroscientist. I ought to be able to give them some advice about how to approach the next 20 years. I'd like to keep them around a while. And although my specialty within neuroscience is really memory and creativity, I do read uh, what my colleagues are doing, and I knew that there were, was a lot of work about the influence of diet on brain health and exercise and sleep, and I just wanted to be able to give them advice. And I looked for a book written for a popular audience that I might give them, and I just couldn't find one. 
and I also wanted to know for myself. I was, as I started the book, I was approaching 60, which is a kind of a milestone, I suppose. At least it, it seemed that for me. And so I wanted to see what I could do that would enhance the chances of me aging gracefully and successfully over the coming however many years I get left. So I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read and also that I wanted to be able to share with my parents. And the interesting thing is that all my books ended up being the book that I wanted to read. I, I tried not to write them. I looked for other books to tackle the subjects that interested me and not finding any, I, I said, well. You talked to a number of other people uh, who in some ways are models for you know, living life well or achieving well into your, into your 80s and 90s. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the other people that you spoke to as this book was coming together? Yeah, that was a lot of fun for me because in addition to conveying the science, I wanted to convey the very human touch of, of talking with people who I think have done something right uh, over the age of 70 and, and 80 and 90, for that matter, who, who seem to have figured something out. I wanted to see if I could extract some common principles that were convergent with the research, but also that there's power in stories. And so hearing the science is one thing, hearing the stories that corroborate it is another. It's a, a hook on which to hang the science to help you remember it. So, you know, I talked to Jane Fonda, uh, Jane Goodall. Jane Fonda is 81. She's starring in a hit TV series, changing stereotypes for older women with that series alongside Lily Tomlin and Sam Waterston and uh, Martin Sheen. The show is called uh, Grace and Frankie. Jane Goodall is 89. She's traveling the world. She's famous as a primatologist who spent most of her life alone in the jungles and has reinvented herself as a public speaker. She spends most of her time in outreach to young children, trying to recruit them to work toward combating climate change. George Schultz, former Secretary of State in the United States, uh, 99 years old, just published his 11th book. And I met with the Dalai Lama. I was uh, able to spend over an hour with him at his compound in Dharamshala, India. He was 84 when we met and had just published his 125th book. <laughs> <laughs> and was just such a, a wonderful source of wisdom and advice about the aging process. And, you know, those are just four of maybe 20 people I talked to. I mean, others included Joni Mitchell and Donald Fagan, the great saxophonist Sonny Rollins, a 97-year-old federal judge in Brooklyn who handles a full caseload, as well as my own parents, who, after I wrote the book, I realized I don't need to tell them anything. They're doing everything right. Perfect. Speaking of books and books being written, you are a writer. You're also, as we said, a musician. You're an academic. What order did those come in for you? I was certainly a musician first. I started fiddling around on the piano when I was four and then studied systematically the clarinet starting at age eight and then added saxophone when I was 12, guitar when I was 20, bass when I was 24, 
and continued to play the piano all along and, and, and took some serious lessons on it from a, a former concert pianist named Earl Ballou, B-E-L-E-W. And so the music was there first. I guess I became an academic when I got into, I mean, I don't know where you draw the line. I loved being a student. Uh, so starting in grade one and in first grade, I immersed myself in my coursework and then some. But I guess I wouldn't say I became an academic until I actually got my first job at McGill, which was in 1999. You know, so I was already in my 40s then. Writing had interested, it had interested me because reading interested me. I love, I love reading and always did. I had a collection of books I read as a kid and would reread them and I'd catalog them. And actually last night before I went to bed, I had found an edition of poems by Robert Louis Stevenson. And I was reading them last night. I've decided I want to avoid the COVID news two hours before bedtime because it Very freaks wise. me the hell out. And so I was reading a child's garden of verses and I found I had a little, I had put a little book plate in it when I was like seven. This book is from the library of, you know, that shows you how seriously I took books. And so when you decide to write your first book for popular audience, this is your brain on music. What was the thing that pushed you to that? What made that the next thing that you had to do? I was interested in writing about cognitive science for a popular audience and was doing so in magazine articles. And an editor in New York read one of them that I had written and asked if I could turn it into an entire book. It was just a little popular article about perfect pitch or absolute pitch. But he wondered if I could expand the approach I took in talking about something that was musically related and had a brain basis and give sort of an overview of, of music and the brain in a book. And Michael, I, I didn't have tenure. It was a bad idea to uh, academically and career-wise to write a book at that stage. And so I told him no. But he was very persistent and he finally said, look, you know, you're the one that I want to do this, have do this for us. Um, it doesn't have to be long and you can take a year or two to do it. So I signed a contract and then put it aside for a year and a half. <laughs> and then in the last six months, I, I realized probably, I still didn't have tenure, but I realized I had made a commitment. And so I started working on it. In the end, it took me nine months. He gave me a three month extension, but it was a total accident. And Neither of us imagined it would sell more than 500 copies. They didn't print more than 500. And in the end, the week the book came out, the bookstores didn't stock it. And so he was stuck with a bunch of books in his warehouse. He wasn't sure what to do with them. And then Christmas time of the year it came out in 2006, Penguin did a promotion at bookstores. I had suggested it. I said, you know, I... What if you were to place an, an ad or you pay for a spot on a table in the front of the store in uh, Barnes and Noble and Chapters and Indigo and Paragraph and Renault Bray <laughs> and Borders and on Amazon, those were the big booksellers, mm -hmm. Hudson's at the airports, just you know, pay for a promotion that would say, starting around Thanksgiving, for the musician on your list. 
And boy, that, that ad campaign took off. That book hit the, the top 10 in both countries, and then things started getting crazy. And it, it was a groundbreaking book in the sense that, you know, I did my first degree as a musician and went looking for books about how the brain processed music. And while there was certainly some scholarly literature on it, there was no book that brought together all of the different thinking about how we perceive music, how we remember music, how it comes together. And so it was, I found it kind of the book that I had always been looking for. But as as you describe it, it was also a book that you wrote because you didn't see anything else out there that was doing that. Yeah, to be fair, there were a couple of books. There was Robert Jourdain, who's a journalist, wrote a book called Music, the Brain, and Ecstasy. Mm-hmm. His was already, I, I don't remember exactly, I think it was 12 years old by the time Stephen asked me to write mine. There was an even older book by Anthony Storr called Music in the Mind, a British psychiatrist. In addition to them not being very up-to-date, they weren't written by people who worked in the field at all, and they had a number of inaccuracies. Um, so I wasn't the first, but people, <laughs> I suppose, think of me as the first. I was certainly the first person in the field to be writing about it with the perspective uh, of that. A lot of the book was informed by my experiences playing Working as a professional musician and uh, producer for 15 years before I got my college degrees. And the most interesting and gratifying thing for me is the number of musicians who got in touch with me, like, like you, musicians who read it and found some value in it. And many of, I would say, all of my musical heroes, people whose music influenced me so profoundly. I mean, I mean, I didn't hear from Beethoven, but, (laughs) or Debussy, but, you know, I heard from Paul McCartney and from George Martin and all of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Joni Mitchell and David Byrne and Sting actually, Sting and David Byrne and Bobby McFerrin all called and said they wanted to visit the lab and I gave them tours and we became friends and it was it was a real wonderful reception for what started out as an idiosyncratic little book that I didn't think anybody would read. And so when I say it's idiosyncratic, it's not like a textbook. It's not very systematic. If I knew that 5 million people read it, which is the numbers I'm getting from the publisher. When you were approaching that first book, were there other authors or books that you looked to in figuring out what your style would be and how you would write it? I thought very much about the idea of authorial voice. In other words, I have a voice as an author uh, on the page. I mean, you know, people who don't know me, how am I going to sound? Am I going to sound professorly? No, I don't think I want that. I I don't want to be talking down to them. I have no no right to do that. I, and I try not to teach that way. I, I don't think that I'm smarter than other people, uh, uh, not by a long shot. Uh, almost everybody I know is smarter than me. Uh, so it's not that, it's just that I happen to have had some experience and learned some things that I want to share. And so I wanted to convey that voice. My editor, Stephen Morrow, and I worked at that together, sometimes we would talk on the phone several times a week. We spent an hour talking about 
word choice sometimes where he would say, well, if you put it that way, it sounds a little professorly. Don't put it that way, <laughs> you know? And, and we'd work through these, these questions of voice. Uh, I wanted to sound non-judgmental and approachable and friendly. I mean, I like to think I'm those things in the real world, but I don't really know. But I mean, no, none of us knows how others perceive us. But when those words stare back at you on the page after you've written them, you have a chance to change them. And so in particular, I was influenced by Kurt Vonnegut. Everything he writes is so, appears so effortless. You feel as though you're listening to your drunk uncle on a porch just tell stories. I thought, I, I want that effortlessness. And I had spent years before even attempting the book reading the Paris Review, particularly during the years that George Plimpton edited it. And I read these interviews with great authors whom I loved, including John Irving, about how they labored over making the style seem matter-of-fact and effortless and like it just rolled out of them. And of course it didn't. And I also knew from having been a record producer and talked to Steve Lillywhite, who produced the first U2 record, there's an interesting uh, parallel here. To me, the first U2 record is a sonic mess. The band sounds like uh, they hardly can play their instruments. They, it sounds like a recording made in a garage, mm -hmm. but it's a powerful record. And I knew from Lily White that they spent six months trying to get the band to sound like that. The band sounded a lot more polished. They worked hard to deconstruct the sound. And they worked hard with their engineer to make it sound like a garage recording. And, and I thought, yeah, it's worth getting that. I wanted to have some aspects of Oliver Sacks, the, the storytelling, mm -hmm. the one sense of wonder. And I wanted to bring in Isaac Asimov, who I had loved as a child, just for his straightforward eloquence. And so my last question is... You are into your 60s. You have just written a book that tries to summarize what it means to lead a good life as you get older. Um, are there things in the course of writing this book that have caused you to change how you're now going into the next chapter of your life? Absolutely. I've tried to avoid complacency, to push myself out of my comfort zone in a variety of ways. Uh, I'm trying to grow as a writer and a scientist all the time. I'm actively collaborating with new and younger colleagues, both musically and, and scientifically. Daniel, this has been a, a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Daniel Leviton. Daniel's latest book is Successful Aging, a neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives, published by Alan Lane Imprint of Penguin Random House. You can find Daniel's latest book and the other books that we have mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the podcast at kobo.com slash conversation. There are so many good authors and so many great books there. 
You can shore up our self-esteem and our need for reassurance with a waiting and a review, or share this podcast with your friends, and also check out our sibling podcast, Kobo Writing Life, all about the nuts and bolts of making it as an independent author. Thank you for listening.